I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, art historian extraordinaire Lizzie Dastin and Justin Bua artist. And before we get into this topic, which is really interesting, I just wanted to explain that Lizzie and I don't prep for these these podcasts. We, I don't take pride in not doing homework, but I do take pride in not doing homework for this because I feel like there's kind of this organic nature of ebb and flow with our discussions that makes this really authentic. And I love talking to Lizzie about art because there's a lot of stuff that she's an expert on that I'm that I'm definitely not. And I think from an artist's point of view, I bring a different perspective. Absolutely. And today, we just came up with our topic a couple minutes ago. I am reading a book on drug use in Nazi Germany, and it reminded me of the role that art and the avant-garde played in Nazi Germany. So we're going to go back to that time, talk about the Third Reich and the way in which Hitler, he masterfully manipulated art that was being made in order to propagate his Nazi agenda. And I think... First of all, we're coming from two Jew perspectives. Uh, being a Puerto Rican Jew, uh, certainly my heart is close to this, as, as you are. Now, Hitler himself, a lot of people might not know this, was an artist. He was a much more of a crappy artist. He wasn't a crappy artist like he was technically not bad. Uh, he did a lot of his his forte was watercolors and architecture, and he wasn't a bad artist by technical, you know, a technical standpoint. He was decent. It's just that Hitler's work really fell short of being provocatively emotive. It was very dead and wooden, and it was soulless. Interestingly enough, his artwork really was soulless. I mean, it really had no, it didn't even have any, like, like violence, or it was very bland shit that you would see an 80-year-old lady paint. (laughs) Which is also fascinating because the art that he vilified was passionate, soulful art. And so maybe we understand the biological reason for him in hating that kind of art as he did. And I wanted to talk about the degenerate art exhibition that he hosted in 1937. So at the time, the Nazi party is just starting to really rise to prominence. And Hitler, because he had this personal agenda against the avant-garde, because he himself could not create in that way and he was rejected from art school and, like you said, a soulless painter, he thought, all right, everyone in Germany kind of hates and mistrusts avant-garde. And when we say a work is avant-garde, we mean trendsetting. So it's more interpretive, it's non-objective, or it airs toward abstraction rather than just painting something in a logical representational way. So artists like Schmidt-Rotloff or Kirschner, and these are both Germans, they would be considered avant-garde artists. So somebody who's painting more from an expressive place rather than a literal one. And 
a lot of people just couldn't understand it. They would look at this work and say, well, I don't get it. It doesn't look like a face in a way that I've ever seen a face before. Those aren't naturalistic colors. And so if I don't get it, I don't like it. And Hitler seized that opportunity and also physically seized a lot of these paintings from personal homes. So the Nazis would loot and raid both museum, but also personal collections. But and then I think that but even beyond that, they would say they would go to like a wealthy Jewish family and they would knock on the door and say, hey, Hitler wants uh, wants your collection. And I think they even bought them at a very bargained you know, at a bargain basement price. And they said, well, the option is if you give it to us or we buy it at a bargain basement price, then we will give you a ticket, a one-way ticket to Italy, which of course never happened because they would go to the death camps. So most of them that were promised a, you know, a way out of of Nazi Germany really had a one-way ticket to, you know, to to the death camps. So really presented as a choice without in actuality being a choice, right? Okay, so the works were essentially stolen and then exhibited in Munich on the walls without their frames. They were shown with on some kind of angled axis, and so it just looked really disrespectful, very diminishing. And then in text, Hitler, often in his own hand, would write these really damaging slogans. And then under every single painting, it would say, paid for by the taxes of the German working citizens, which is so maniacal. I mean, it's genius. It's because he's basically saying, or the organizers were saying, this is shit. You hate this. This is bad art. And guess who's paying for it? And so it really, it instilled rage and so much hostility. And a lot of the work was shown alongside of photographs of people who are suffering from mental disabilities. And I think that was another little subversive strategy. And people who do know about the degenerate art exhibition assume that all of the artists involved were Jewish. And only a handful, I believe six artists in the show, including Mark Chagall, were Jews. Most of the others were were German, actually. There were lots of Germans, lots of people who identified with communism. And so everything about this show was like what Hitler did not want the Aryan race to be. And then across the street was a companion exhibition of permissible Aryan art. So this is where the soulless stuff comes in with statues of these, you know, Germans with crazy musculature. And there was nothing particularly expressive or or content rich about any of the work in that exhibition. But it was meant as a a way to re-cleanse the soul after you saw all of this terrible stuff. So basically, at the end of the show, Hitler created some huge bonfire and destroyed many of the works. Not all of them. Some through the years have been redistributed to private collections and also museums, but some they were destroyed and then others were sold at auction so that Hitler could make or the Nazi party could make a modicum of money from this garbage art. I mean, I think that the work that was hidden in the salt mines uh, in Germany I think that it was valued at, uh, he had hidden about $3.5 billion worth of work. So and you guys have probably seen uh, some movies about this. There's a lot of movies and documentaries about this, but I think the, 
the mainstream one was the Monuments Men, right? Did you see that? I did. With Clooney? Was it Clooney, I don't know right? how historically accurate that was, but it was I mean, for sure entertaining. I'm sure it's embellished, but the reality is that, like, you know, Hitler had a lot of paintings. He had, you know, uh, Vermeer, uh, you know, really, really great art. He thing about Hitler is he himself was a shit painter, but he had really, weirdly enough, great taste in art. And funnily enough, some of the high-ranking Nazi officials like Goebbels actually supported the avant-garde in their own private collections before the degenerate art show. So there is a lot of hypocrisy going on. I mean, we're not shocked by this, but a funny story that I remember reading is that there was this one sculptor, I think his last name was Belling, and he was in the degenerate show. He did these really cool, organic, abstracted works, and I guess the curator wasn't all that comprehensive or thoughtful because this person didn't realize that Belling was also across the street in the sanctions Nazi art. So (laughs) (laughs) I just think that's kind of amazing that certainly the exhibit, which attracted over a million viewers, was this propagandistic tool. And that I think is so smart because art is not just a formal exercise. Like we've talked about again and again, art is really a tool for social change for hideous fascist art leaders, or not art leaders, haha, um, political leaders. And so art is a means toward achieving something larger. And I think that therein lies its power. Let's talk about some of the artists that were very instrumental in their voice against fascism and what was going on at the time. And I think uh, first and foremost, Katie Kollwitz comes to mind. Uh, Katie Kollwitz is a German expressionist female woman. I've spoken about her before. I'm a huge fan of hers, mostly uh, known for her etchings, for her lithography, and that's because she was such a wonderful drafts person. Uh, usually you say drafts man or woman, but I say drafts person. I think Katie Kollwitz was a phenomenal drafts person, and she depicted. Uh, a lot of obviously mother and child, but I think that came as a direct result that her kids died in the war. She had a lot of death around her. So it's always like Mutter mit Kind, you know, mother with child. But at the same time, like death is coming. The skeleton is grabbing her. Death is near. The skeleton is pulling the baby away from her uh, into the next life, into the afterworld, uh, across the river of sticks. And I think that her work, because she was a woman, is so emotionally captivating. And she also was obviously very anti-war and pro-socialist and feed the poor, feed the hungry, help the children. And Hitler hated her. Uh, Do you know anything more about that? Because I just, you know, that's the bits and pieces that I've gathered from reading about her. Sure. Well, not about her necessarily, but I have other examples of these renegade figures who are speaking out against the Third Reich. And a couple of them were Dadaists. So Hannah Hush and John Hartfield, they made these photo montages and they were really exposing this hideous rhetoric of the Nazi party and these subversive strategies of trying to get the average German citizen to support their regime. And when the war was right about to break out, the SS raided Hartfield's house and he had to jump off the balcony to escape them. And Hush, she intuited that their work was going to be the first to be destroyed. So she 
buried a lot of these collages under under her garden and she also hid a bunch in her fireplace and so that's the only way that these works were able to survive the war but the other thing I wanted to bring up is that when I was in college I took a class called the art of Auschwitz and I traveled to Poland to Auschwitz and I saw many examples of work that was made by prisoners and these really fan talk about an expressive drawing that is completely saturated with this fear of death or this acknowledgement of death the works are really hard to look at and nobody talks about them nobody really knows that they exist and in taking that class i was so profoundly able to see the role that art played in the camps themselves and there are a few different things that the art did so one is that it was a way to humanize the prisoners when they were able to squirrel away some kind of parchment or some sort of pen or charcoal with which to draw often they would they would illustrate scenes that made them think of an earlier time and this makes a lot of sense to me because all of the identifiers of these people were stripped even their names and now all of a sudden you don't have any humanity you just have a number and so in drawing yourself as the way that you once looked or drawing your life in the way that, that it once looked, you were able to kind of reclaim something that was otherwise taken from you. And another role is to authenticate experience because the Nazis didn't want any of that documented. And Yehuda Bakan, he was a prisoner and he also was an artist. And the works that he made were used as evidentiary support in the Nuremberg trials. Oh, wow. So again, art has become this incredible document and a tool for survival. It's, uh, you know, it's, it makes me think about Sukkot. You know Sukkot's work? I don't. Sukkot is a crazy, uh, dark painter uh, using violent themes, mostly talking about agricultural farming. But it's about the mistreatment of animals uh, in slaughterhouses, pig pens, you name it, it's it's very desperate. Uh, it's it's very dark. There's a lot of chiaroscuro, which means light and dark. Uh, and she's not a technical virtuoso by any stretch of the imagination, but she doesn't need to be because she's an emotional painter. And it reminds me, you know, a lot of what the art you're talking about. It's it's similar. It's just animals, you know, in place of humans and. Uh, if you don't know Sue Ko's work, you should you should check her out, obviously, because you don't know her. But she's she's really deep and profound, and she does a lot of important work. But I think uh, everybody out there um, should check her work out because she was definitely influenced also by that era, and I'm sure by that art. So, and she's a, she's a voice for the animals, which is always nice. Um, but it's really fascinating to think about, you know, Hitler as an artist or as a wannabe artist, and all of his officers and there's this weird commonality which is art like they could be so dark and demonic and horrible people you know really stripping like you said the humanity from individuals and not even thinking about anybody but themselves these complete narcissistic misogynistic pricks but the other side is they have this love and affinity to beautiful painting you want to know it's sick and that's a great lead in is that there was a museum at Auschwitz 
for the SS officers because their days just got so stressful and sad. Sure. So there was a museum to reclaim the experience of the day. And the museum, of course, was made up of art that had been looted from the houses of the prisoners. You see, Hitler was trying to... The reason that he was taking all this art, uh, whether he was paying pennies on the dollar for it or whether he was having other people steal it, there's no actual evidence that he he himself didn't pay for it, by the way, historically, because I looked that up. But obviously other people stole for him. It's like, hey, I didn't get, I didn't do shit. What am I talking about? But, you know, he was trying to build a museum. He was trying to build like the greatest museum in all of Germany, but never actualized, obviously, because, you know, they lost the war and he, and he died. But all of that art was being stolen by, from personal collections and museums so that he could build this giant homage to art. Even the art that he was labeling as degenerate? No, but okay. all the other art. I yeah, mean, all like, the you other, know, right. He had like Titian and, and Rubens and Degas. I mean, it, you know, they had everybody. It's it's interesting how much how much of the classic paintings. And I remember uh, at one point he had ordered a, like an officer to blow up the salt mine where all the work was. This is, we're talking about like $3.5 billion worth of work. And they blew it up. And so that's when... Uh, what's the doc? What's the movie I just was talking about two seconds ago? Oh, the the George Clooney one. Yeah, oh, I can't remember what it's called. I just said it like two, <laughs> two seconds ago. What's that? Monument. See, that's all you have to do oh, is scream perfect. it. Monument Man. When they came, uh, that was like a special group of uh, from the infantry or, or one division where they were art experts, right? And they when they came in, none of the work was damaged. All of the work was intact. Hmm. So they blew up the salt mine and they were ordered to just destroy it all. But then it was still fine because they just blew up the entrance. And once they cleared the debris out, they went inside and it was all fine. Now I'm learning this from a historical art, art historical context, not from the movie that <laughs> I saw. Because you, you know clarified. that shit is definitely <laughs> distorted and whatever that's, whatever's in there is just not. As you're saying true. this, I'm like, please do not cite George Clooney as your reference. <laughs> yeah, George Clooney is my art historian reference. So, so an, oh, I'm sorry. No, please. Oh, me? Okay. Thank you. All right, I'll take it. Another issue that happened after the war is about the redistribution of Nazi stolen art yep. to the families that mm. had been affected. And I don't know if you remember maybe 10 years ago, but there was an issue where the provenance of this beautiful painting by Klimt, it, and it was at LACMA, so a local treasure that I remember seeing when I was a little girl going to the museum, they realized that it belonged to this family mm. who had been, or the, the original owner had been sent to the camps, and so the painting had been stolen. And then the issue of redistribution became hotly debate, uh, debated and discussed in the news because the person who was given the work back, so it was taken away from LACMA, out of the public space where everybody could see it, where it was accessible and it was on view, given to this family, mm. rightly so, because it was hers, but she couldn't afford the taxes. And so then she sold the painting at auction at Christie's. And, and then did the museum buy it back? You know, I can't remember who bought it. I believe that it was a private collector, hopefully, okay. who will show the works. And I think they have since been on display. But I remember I went to New York and I saw that work at Christie's. And it was just this sad 
poignant moment of you used to be in a public museum mm. and now this could be the last time I see you because if a private collector buys it, then there's no, there's no responsibility to necessarily show at a museum. Well, oftentimes though, in fairness, cause I've followed a couple of these cases is that the museum does buy the work back eventually you know, at a higher price. And oftentimes they split it with the person that owns it. Like, so if there's a third party that owns it, you know, or have, has donated it or whatever, that usually things are split and it's, it's, it's fucked up because the reality is at some point during the provenance of that piece, it was owned by those people's families. So it's, it's there. Yeah. It should go back. But at the same time, it's a tough situation because, you know, you, some museums build their cred around paintings that are marquee paintings. Or artifacts, if we're going back even further, like the Elgin marbles from Greece. They were stolen like so much archaeological work was. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, that, that that's okay. Nothing should be stolen from the, uh, from the culture that created the work in the first place. However, although I would love to have stole a Keith Herring as he was doing it on the, like one of those, you know, billboard oh, back in the days. Me too. In New York. I know. On the I, I, I would no problem with a stealing. I would have stole that. I would have been so rich by now. Cause <laughs> I saw him in person doing those. And I was, I had thought like, man, if I just cut those out, well, you should have. Street art is a different kind of act of generosity. No, I understand that. But like, you know, 20, you know, hindsight is 2020, but like, I just, think now like god damn how many times did i see <laughs> keith herrings in my neighborhood and i never took it so or, jealous ugh. all right well with the elgin marble slightly different experience that so they were stolen and now are on display at the british museum in london and greece is so confident that they are going to get these elgin marbles restored that they have erected a temple for their eventual display now if England returns these relics, then the Louvre is basically going to be out of a collection, the British Museum out of their collection. And I just, I don't really know how I feel about that because on the one hand, of course, it, these are, these are emblems of Greek national pride and should they be in their country of birth? Yes. But on the other hand, are they going to be cared for and conserved with the same kind of vigor as they have been for hundred, you know, at least a hundred years at the British museum. I'm not sure. And then people aren't really going to have as easy access to see them. So I think the question becomes complicated less so when it's about Nazis, but still to what is the museum's responsibility? What is the private collector's responsibility in excavating the provenance of the work that they're going to buy? These questions and more. Does anybody, <laughs> Manny, have questions out there? So uh, I think we could just wrap it up by saying that, you know, the Nazis, although they were the most horrible human beings in the, you know, in the history of the world, had ironically great taste in art. Well, which, I which, don't know if they had. It ir- shows you how. No, it just shows you how complex people are. You know what I mean? People are complex, and these are these are pathological murderers. Some of them, uh, and yet they have an aesthetic morality to them. You know, like a people who seem inherently immoral. You know, have another side. It's just bizarre. And 
although they hated the work, or at least some of them hated the work, they still were aware of its power to the degree that they used the work for their own for Yeah, their let's own not purposes. forget that art is, art is currency. And if you look at the black market trends, you know, Rembrandt all the time is used to barter with, you know, nuclear weapons. And it's just art on the black market has value. And art not, you know, in, the, in our regular market has value as well. So art is a powerful tool of currency. And I think the Nazis saw that, especially being in Europe amid all of that greatness. And it's not like Germany didn't have great artists, but they certainly, you know, weren't the epicenter of the great art. Well, the, the German expressionists were, I think. Sure, absolutely. But I'm saying the impressionists, it's not happening, in, you know, it's not, it's not getting germinating in, in Germany. Germinating <laughs> in Germany. I like you know, that. I just want to make sure people got that. But it was, you know, it was like, yeah, German expressionism that came from that. But that was after. You know what I mean? Right. That was about, that was the early 1900s. So it, it was right around the time of World War One because okay. several of the German expressionists were sent to war and so their careers were cut short when they died. So I do think the avant-garde does have legs in Germany, but the work that Hitler was trying to promote was diametrically opposite of that aesthetic. And this one guy, this German expressionist, Nolde, he was a Nazi, but his work was in the degenerate art exhibition because he didn't paint in a style that was in accordance to the Aryan ideal. So it is complicated, like you say. There's really a lot of texture to the role that art played, both in the in Germany and also in the concentration camps and actually after in these museum conversations that we have. So out of the darkness comes the light of our sponsor, Tommy John. <laughs> you go to Tommy John underwear <laughs> and you think about that underwear being great underwear. Oh yeah. Enter in art attack and receive a 20% promotion for women too. All right, guys. I'm <laughs> um, out.